Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It only took how many decades for black people to finally get a, a New Year's Eve show that maybe was geared more toward them than the white audience in America. So... I give him credit for that. But the only truly great New Year's Eve show was CNN's sloppy, drunken, four-hour telecast on New Year's Eve with Anderson Cooper and Kathy Griffin. The Stream Police Podcast is brought to you by OverdueReview.com. Want something more in-depth than a sarcastic, pretentious, 140-character review of your favorite movie? Read long-form reviews of movies, TV, and music from the distant and recent past at OverdueReview.com. Hello again, friends, and welcome to another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. Fellow media purveyors out there, you found this show because you're interested in knowing what are the best things right now streaming out in the media landscape on Netflix, on Amazon Prime, on Hulu, everywhere else, and also what is uh, in theaters, as I've been talking about the last few weeks. I've been talking about a lot of movies that are in theaters uh, because it is uh, awards season right now, and I'm running out and seeing them and trying to let you know which ones are, are really the best ones because you're hearing a lot of hype about all of them. But let's let's kind of cut through the fog. Today we're going to talk about a few more movies that are in theaters a little bit later on in the show. Uh, but I'm going to start with some things that are on TV. And later in the show also we'll be hearing from our music editor at OverdueReview.com, Andy Sedlak, and hearing what he's got on deck. Uh, I am uh, Clint Davis, the movies and TV editor over at the website. Urge you to go over there and read up um, on uh, you know some some classic movies. Maybe we'd, we've reviewed your favorite and maybe... We've got a different take on it or something that you've been wanting to watch but uh, just have been wondering if it's worth the time. You can always type it into the search box there and figure it out. All right. Uh, let me go ahead and light up my stogie this week. Oh, yeah. Smoking my cigar here in my little closet in Cincinnati, Ohio. Talking to you, friends, is what I like to do here on the Stream Police. All right, I've got a note for you on Star Wars, The Force Awakens. I'm still the only man in America who has not seen Star Wars. I am saying it. I'm not saying that I'm proud to say it. It's not like uh, I'm not trying to be like a hipster or something like that. It sounds like I am, like I'm just trying to avoid seeing Star Wars. But I'm not. There's just too many other damn things in theaters right now that I really want to see and have to see before they are out of theater. Star Wars is going to be in theaters probably until the year 2018. So uh, we will. Uh, I, I, I'm going to see it. There's no question about it. But I've seen about 20 other movies since it came out. So I still consider myself a badass, but I'm not trying to be a hipster, I swear. 
Just trying to give you the straight dope. Because I, I figure you've probably seen Star Wars, so you don't really need my take on it. But when I do see it, I'll tell you what I think. I did get an email from one of our uh, our most dedicated listeners, our buddy Glenn. He wrote in and, and asked if I had seen Star Wars and if I was going to talk about it on the show this time. And I had to tell him, no, man, I haven't seen it yet. Talk about a bunch of other things. But uh, at least I guess Glenn is, is chomping at the bit to maybe give me his take, but he doesn't want to give me any spoilers. So I appreciate that. All right. Uh, as we rang in the new year... Television on New Year's Eve, it's it's a longstanding tradition. The networks, especially ABC with uh, Dick Clark over the years, had the uh, had the, the, the show where he counts, counts it down. You have music performances and celebrity interviews and, and all kinds of things. So it's always a big event on New Year's Eve. You have friends over. Maybe you watch the you watch the shows on television. And, you know, really, for me, those shows are so boring and they're so canned that I, I just don't. Really, I'm not interested in watching them, with the exception of one single New Year's Eve telecast, which I had to mention to start the Stream Police podcast, since we talk about all things that are great on television, even though this isn't technically streaming. And you really you can't watch it again, but I'm going to give you a heads up for next year. So anyways, happy 2016, everyone. We rang in the New Year as usual. We had these inoffensive pop acts performing on NBC and ABC with Carson Daly and, uh, and, and Ryan Seacrest. They were decadent shows hosted by those two guys. And, and by the way, on Carson Daly, I, I feel like he's a guy that I don't believe any 20-somethings or like teenagers especially realize quite how big an icon he is. They think of him as like, yeah, he's the guy that hosts The Voice. But no, he's not the guy that hosts The Damn Voice, all right? He's the guy that hosted the show for teenagers and for uh, people in their 20s, in especially teenagers, though, in the late 90s, early 2000s. Everyone's so obsessed with 90s culture if you're so obsessed with 90s culture, you've got to be obsessed with Carson Daly as well. And you've got to look at him as the icon that people in our generation do as the host of Total Request Live, all right? Fox had a weird show. They had Pitbull hosting it and Terry Crews uh, hosting a show from Miami, Florida, not in New York. So I give them credit for doing something differently, different. But uh, the show inexplicably had 25 performances from Puff Daddy, who I didn't even realize was still rapping at this point. So it was kind of weird. But definitely they were going for a different demographic than Ryan Seacrest and Carson Daly, (coughs) black people. I give them credit for that, too, because Fox has proven that that that's been an untapped demographic. Not just Fox, ABC, too, with all the Shonda Rhimes shows that do great ratings and they're great shows, but Fox's empire. So, I mean, this is – finally, I'm glad. It it only took – I mean, it only took uh, how many hundreds of years for, uh, and not that the television's been around that long, but it only took how many decades for black people to finally get a, a New Year's Eve show that maybe was geared more toward them than the white audience in America. So I give them credit for that. And Pitbull's Hispanic, too, so they're, just, they're going for all the minorities over there. But the only truly great New Year's Eve show, as usual, was CNN's sloppy, drunken, four-hour telecast on New Year's Eve with Anderson Cooper and Kathy Griffin. If you have never watched this, and I have to imagine at this point you've watched it because I think they've been doing it for like close to five years now. If you've never watched this, though, and it sounds really stupid, right? Anderson Cooper, who's pretty straight-laced news guy most of the time, respected newsman for sure, and Kathy Griffin, who is, you know, has a reputation of being one of the more annoying comedians in the business, and definitely one of the most overbearing comedians in the business. The, the pair of them together is so great, and it's not even their pairing that's so great, but it is. They do have good chemistry, and you can tell that they really they like each other and they're friends, and it's just like friends talking on the air for four hours on CNN, which I, I love. I think it's fantastic. 
that CNN gives them the airwaves for four hours because let's stop, you know, taking it all so seriously all the time. I mean, there there is some time for fun, and I'm glad for four hours a year CNN decides to have a little bit of fun. So Anderson Cooper and Kathy Griffin, have they host this show on New Year's Eve, and there is no rhyme or reason to this show. It feels like none of it's planned. It's a train wreck, but I mean that in the best way possible. Kathy's talking over everyone constantly. They'll check in with correspondence and stuff, and she's just talking over them. She doesn't even let them answer questions. She's just she's working the whole time. She's doing doing uh, bits and 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 jokes the whole time. Anderson Cooper is chuckling uncontrollably like a little girl at everything that happens. And the correspondents scattered all across the U.S. are almost all inebriated by the time they do they do their 11 p.m. hour live hits. So it's just, like I said, it's a train wreck of a show, and it really is a blast. And it may, to me, I feel like it may be the last truly live television show. I mean, news is a truly live television show, but it's so planned and scripted, obviously. But you get those great live moments sometimes that only happen on a newscast. This show is like that the whole time. It's just, it's one big live moment. Like, it's, I swear to God, nothing feels planned at all in this. And that, to me, is what makes it fantastic. That's what makes it live TV. It's just, it's really unpredictable. And it's one of my favorite television shows every year. It's like my favorite few hours of TV every year happens right at the end of the year. And they did it again this year. It was very funny. And uh, Kathy Griffin and Anderson Cooper, they are the king and queen of ringing in New Year's Eve in my book. You know, Gus came out this year. Hey, man, that's cool. <laughs> uh, Miley Cyrus is pansexual. Did you hear that? I did hear that. Yeah, so that means she's attracted to um, gay people, straight people, bisexual people, people who are transgender, people who might be transgender, anyone except people who are minors, people who aren't consenting, or animals. That's exactly right. She's a complete lover. Sound she's a total familiar? sweetheart. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. I don't know. Yeah. I want to be pansexual. Well, you're you welcome can, to be. You can be whatever you want. I think I just became. You just came? Yeah. Oh, my Lord. All right. We're going to take a short break. And I didn't say it. I know. Yes. Thank wow. you. I love you guys. Sorry. Oh, man. I'm getting us in trouble. Yeah. We love it here at TLC. <laughs> TLC. All right. Staying in television, let's go now over to Premium Cable and talk about something that is streaming right now on HBO Now and HBO Go. And it aired on HBO in the last couple of years and actually is an ongoing series. I'm talking about The Leftovers. This is a show created by Damon Lindelof, who co-created Lost and who also uh, co-wrote the movie Tomorrowland earlier this year. He's done a lot of good things. Uh, Tom Parada also co-created this series. The uh, first season of the show is based on Tom Parada's novel, The Leftovers. The show stars Justin Theroux. You may know him as Mr. Jennifer Aniston. Um, it also co-stars Carrie Coon, who's more of a theater actress, and Amy Brenneman, who used to be on NYPD Blue back in the first couple seasons of that great series. So The Leftovers, this is a family drama of like the highest quality you can make. And I, and I feel if you've been a fan of HBO for a while, and if you love the show Six Feet Under like I do, Six Feet Under, truly one of my favorite shows ever, and really like a landmark of television shows about families. I feel like The Leftovers is the closest thing that most similar, I should say, in vibe to Six Feet Under that HBO has done ever. Like this is the closest in vibe to that show. But it's not like a clone of Six Feet Under. It's not really that much like it, but it is like it. You can you can definitely feel shades of it, of of, of you know suburban problems and all the, the mental things that are going on in a family's head while they're sitting at the dinner table and everyone's thinking different things and they're they're all kind of frayed but they're still very close and yeah you know, it's just it's a, it's a great show. So 
we follow in The Leftovers this family named the Garveys. They're a family of four who are a bit scattered for various reasons, scattered geographically and scattered mentally for various reasons, mostly related to each one's state of mind, following a mysterious event that gives the show its title. It's called The Leftovers because the show centers around the people left on Earth after about 2% of the world's population suddenly disappeared one day, a couple years before the first episode starts. So... 2% of the world's population, a couple million people just disappear. There doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason. People try to figure out why the, why were these people taken? I don't understand. I mean, it's not, you know, there were some babies taken. There were some old people taken. There were some people who were like murderers and rapists taken. I mean, it's it's not one of those things that's so simple as all these people were great and they were taken by the Lord above. And it's it's not like that. It just seems like it just randomly happened and they think it might be geographic. And it's just... It's one of those mysteries that goes over the entire show. But the, what I love about The Leftovers is that it doesn't spend its time focused on that. Most shows about this kind of, that have that kind of event in them, the whole show would be about cracking that. It would be like scientists figuring out what happened and you know, interviewing people who, were, who had family members taken. And this is not what The Leftovers concerns itself with. This show isn't like a show like Flash Forward, if you remember that. Flash Forward was kind of like a copy of Lost. It was like in the same vein. What happened in Flash Forward on ABC years ago was everyone on Earth flashed forward. They they saw something, and I can't remember how many years it was, but they saw like a few moments of their future, like a couple years, you know, in the future. And some people saw what they were going to be doing. Other people just saw black. So you just assumed, I guess, they were going to be dead within that time period. So it's kind of a scary thing, and it was a cool idea. But that show was like all about figuring out why the Flash Forward happened and wh- what was behind it. But as I said, this show is co-created by a guy who co-created Lost, but it's not like that. This show is firmly planted in human drama. That's what it's all about, and especially in the mental state of what is really a large ensemble cast. The episodes of The Leftovers typically follow a single character for the majority of the action, so it is similar to Lost in that way. And we get into their heads with some dream sequences that remind me of The Sopranos at times and hallucinations that are ever-present on screen, which, again, remind me of Six Feet Under. I hate to keep comparing it to other great shows, but I'm just saying that there are a lot of great comparisons you can make. I mean, these are these are some of my favorite shows, Lost, The Sopranos, and Six Feet Under. You could do a lot worse in the TV landscape. So... If I'm comparing them to those, then it's just for me to tell you how how solid I feel like this show is. The show is an acting, writing, and directing powerhouse. I give a special shout-out to Justin Thoreau, who plays Kevin Garvey, the uh, the main character, really, and Carrie Coon, who plays Nora, his girlfriend, for handling serious mental anguish with delicacy. Uh, because that's what they do. It's not overwrought. It's not. Uh, it, it's not over the top in your face. Overacting. It's really not. It's an understated show all the way through. And uh, Margaret Qualley, I have to give a lot of credit to. Also, you probably have never heard of her because she's really never done anything but the leftovers. But she plays the family's teenage daughter, Jill. And was actually only a teenager when the show started. She was like 18 years old when they gave her this part. And she nails it. She's fantastic. And I hope that she's an actress that we get to see a little bit more screen work from in coming years. Because I would love to see her take over one of these like teen, you know, novel series or whatever like they gave to Shailene Woodley and Jennifer Lawrence. I think that I think Margaret Qualley could handle something like that because she is fantastic in The Leftovers. I've bought her in every single scene and she's one of my favorite actresses on the show. And this is, like I said, an acting powerhouse uh, show. Season three, the final season of The Leftovers, is expected to air later this year. They did just renew it for that final season um, because it's not a show that gets huge ratings. 
But HBO, in their greatness, has never really been the network that was so worried about ratings because they're not handcuffed to that. I mean, think about The Wire. The Wire, you think about it now, is like the show everyone realizes was so great, so uh, transformative for TV drama and for police procedurals. But nobody watched The Wire when it was on. People didn't really watch The Wire until later when it came out on DVD, uh, myself included. And it got a lot of buzz after that. It was one of those shows that lived when it was on DVD, but HBO kept it on for five seasons because they, the, when, when David Simon wrote the show, he knew five seasons is what they wanted to do. They could tell this story of Baltimore in five, maybe six seasons, but they did it in five, and it was flawless, um, or nearly flawless, I should say. And The Leftovers is going to be picked up for its third season, despite not getting great ratings, but it's a great story, and I, I want to see how they're going to wrap this thing up. So uh, the first two seasons right now are on HBO Go and HBO Now. Each season is only 10 episodes, and they're hour-long episodes, so mostly. Some are a little bit longer than an hour. But, uh, yeah, like I said, 20 episodes. You can rip through the leftovers real fast, and you will love it. It, uh, Like I said, right now is on HBO Now and HBO Go. You know, my daughter, <clears throat> about a year ago, she was out in our backyard chasing around some of her friends, and she was laughing. And she saw me watching her, and she looked guilty. She wasn't sure if it was okay to be happy. But this, what we've experienced, it isn't grief. It's never ending. Ambiguous loss. If my eight-year-old can find happiness again, why can't the rest of us? Bullshit. I'm sorry? No, you're not sorry. Sorry people don't write books. Wait a minute. No, my pop offended you in any way. That was not ambiguous my Ambiguous loss? What is ambiguous about your family being gone? Well, and you must know because you lost, what, four? You count your parents in that? What were they, in their 70s? You sit there and tell me a story about your daughter. I lost everyone. I lost everything. You fraud. You liar you're not in pain because if you were in pain you would know there is no moving on there is no happiness what's next what's f next nothing is next nothing that is truly one of the uh one of the strongest and uh most well done tv shows of the last 10 years on tv and and now let's move on to a show that i feel like has great potential but didn't quite reach all that it was capable of, I feel like, in the first season. Netflix is the uh, network for this show. It's called Master of None, starring Aziz Ansari, created by Aziz Ansari and Alan Yang, who uh, Aziz Ansari you probably know from his stand-up work and also uh, in his, his great work on Parks and Recreation where he played Tom, and he was so consistently just so funny and such a great character on that show. He did a great job. And Alan Yang was a writer on some of the funniest episodes episodes of uh, of Parks and Rec. So they created this show together and it stars Aziz Ansari in the uh, in the main role, Noel Wells uh stars as well as his girlfriend and Eric Wareheim from Tim and Eric fame, uh one of my favorite comedy duos ever. Uh, he is uh he is one of the main character's best friends on the show. So Master of None is in case you've seen it floating around on Netflix there and you've wondered what really it's about, this is a sitcom for millennials. Really, it's it's definitely made for millennials, similar in flavor and voice to HBO's Girls, if you've ever watched Girls. But I don't like Girls particularly. I've never connected with it, and I don't feel like it's because I'm a man. I've connected with plenty of shows and movies that were about women, female characters I've, I've identified with. But on Girls, I just don't. I don't connect with them at all. 
it's similar in voice and flavor, like I said, to girls, but without the obnoxious characters and the quote-unquote white girl problems tone that girls really has because it's just a bunch of white girls in New York who are doing pretty well, but it's like nothing's nothing's that great. I don't know. This show is also similar in execution to one of my truly my favorite TV shows ever, Louie, on FX, but it's not as ambitious or artistic as Louie, not yet anyways. Of course, if you remember Louie, if you've been a longtime viewer of that show, it didn't always start out as a very ambitious show, but it grew and morphed into the, I mean, you talk about a show that has evolved over time and continue to change its identity, Louie is probably the ultimate show um, that you wouldn't recognize by season five by the time uh, if you had just started with season one. I mean, it, it has grown so much and gotten better every year. But Master of None, this show straddles the line between drama and comedy a lot. It's a dramedy. It leans more toward uh, it, it leans more toward a drama as the season goes along. Honestly, starts out more to comedy, leans more toward drama at the end of the series. If you're expecting Parks and Recreation style laughs, don't because you're going to be disappointed. This is not that kind of show. It's not goofy. It's not wacky. It's grounded mostly in real life. Some of the stuff is hard to buy, but I never I don't live in New York. Uh that's not my lifestyle. I don't travel in those packs, so maybe it is more uh believable if you live in New York and you're in your 20s or something like that, but I don't find all of it completely relatable, but much more relatable than Parks and Rec. This show is aimed, though, at a core audience, people in their 20s and late 30s, 20s to late 30s, I should say. If you do not fall into the, the 20s to late 30s age bracket, I imagine that you are not going to feel like you're in on the things that they're talking about in this show because it is firmly made for that age group. Uh, there were times that I really liked Master of None's voice. I liked what it was trying to say about society. I liked what it was trying to say about our generation, the millennials. Uh, but there were other times that I felt like I was being beaten over the head with a teaching stick ripped straight out of the worst episodes of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. You remember Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, how sometimes they do like the very special episode, Carlton got on speed because he was trying to study up for the big test and he overdosed or like, uh, and he had to go into the hospital and Will felt so bad about it and he actually cried. I mean, everybody remembers that episode, right? Or the episode of uh, Saved by the Bell when, uh, it's the same thing, got on speed, studying for a test and it, it spirals out of control. So I felt like this show at times channeled that and I didn't like that so much because it felt very old fashioned. Uh, but there were times where it felt very progressive. Uh, the the synopsis of the show is this, Master of None. Dev is the main character played by Aziz Ansari. He's an actor who has mostly appeared in commercials. He doesn't really do any work outside of commercials, hasn't really gotten any work out of commercials. He doesn't really love acting, but it pays his bills, and it pays his bills well given the size and style of his apartment that he lives in by himself in New York. He complains about it being small, but it's it's like a typical sitcom thing where they talk about their small, crappy apartment, but it's actually like the greatest apartment of all time, and it cost you a million dollars to move into it. Um, and it gives him the all-important attribute of any lead character of a TV series, freedom. That's what his job gives him. He doesn't have to be at the office 9 to 5. He can just walk around, hang out with his buddies. He's got this gang of diverse pals, and I say diverse meaning that like in the, the worst focus group kind of way. It, here's, here are his buddies. So Dev is an Indian guy, right? His buddies are a big, goofy white guy, an Asian guy, and a black lesbian in New York City. So, like I said, 
they were taken like right off the cover of some school textbook where you had like the chick in the wheelchair and then you had the Asian guy and the white guy and then you had like the black girl and they're all hanging out together laughing. It's something that you never saw in any public high school in American history, but it was right there on the cover of your textbook. That's how this group of friends is like in Master of None. So they do modern activities such as binge-watching entire seasons of BBC's Sherlock, and they spend an hour researching taco restaurants online before actually going out to get some. These are the kind of things they do on this show. He dates around a bit, but eventually settles into a steady relationship with a girl played by Noelle Wells, who was on Saturday Night Live for a season. And as their relationship escalates, her name's Rachel, the show, I feel like, really hits its stride. I really like the things it said about relationships in your 20s, and I, I just thought that was where this show was so smart and so focused. It wasn't so focused when they weren't talking about the relationship stuff. It felt very scattered. So each episode of Master of None is introduced like a short film. It's got a title card, it's got some little, a little music theme, and a list of the cast along with which parts they're going to play. So that's every episode starts that way. It gives you the title of the show, it, it, like the title of the episode, not the show, it gives you the rundown of the cast and the parts that they're going to play. So it's like watching a little play or a short film every time. But I feel like this doesn't really work. I wish they'd go away from this because they don't play different characters in each episode. So it's the same cast every episode. This is the kind of thing you do on like a show like The Twilight Zone where you've got, okay, this week it's Burgess Meredith playing, you know, John Smith. And then next week Burgess Meredith might be back, but this time he's playing Rob Porter. So, I mean, it's just one of those things that to me it felt kind of gimmicky by the end of the show, and I, I didn't really need it. I didn't need to know who these actors were because I knew who they were because I've watched every episode and they're playing the same parts. But it would be like if you're watching The Big Bang Theory and every week they had to put the title card at the front. Sheldon. Uh, I can't even remember the guy who, who plays him. Uh, other guy, the guy from Roseanne, Kaylee Cuoco, a hot girl across the hall. You know, if they, if they you can tell I really know that show well, but it would be like that. You know, it's you don't need it after you've watched a couple episodes, maybe on the first one, but you don't need it after that. This is not an anthology show, so I'm not sure why it tries to act like one in some parts. This show carries a single story arc over most of its episodes. It's Dev, it's him in a relationship, um, especially, like I said, toward the end. It's him trying to make it as an actor, you know, for a little bit. He's acting in this movie in several episodes, and how's that going to play out? So it's a single story arc. But then a few of the episodes just feel tossed in and totally unrelated to anything in the series. There's one whole episode about parents. I think the title of the episode is Parents. And Dev realizes that he doesn't give his parents enough respect for making the journey to America and succeeding as Indian immigrants. And, you know, it's a fine episode, but it doesn't feel like it meshes with really with anything else. It does teach us about his parents who become minor characters, but his parents are his dad is so like goofy. It takes you out of the show. Sometimes I feel like when he's on, I think he's funny, but he takes me out of the show. He feels more like he would be on like a CBS sitcom or something. There's another episode that spends the entire 30 minutes examining how Indians are portrayed on television and in movies. And, you know, it's like I said, it's a fine, they're fine little episodes and they're an interesting look at like atypical sitcom fodder. I mean, like I said, a whole episode talking about how a minority is portrayed on television. It, it was it was interesting, but I wish the show could have decided if it was a character relationship study or an anthology series about societal issues, which I felt like it wanted to be at times. But you really can't be both. It's it's hard to do both. It just feels jarring because once you're getting locked into the story, you don't want to have a 30-minute episode about 
you know, how the guy from Short Circuit 2 was actually a white guy in brown face. I mean, okay, that's an anecdote that you throw into an episode, but you don't make a whole episode about it. I'm sorry. So sometimes the show feels like a PSA for various issues, a public service announcement, an after-school special, if you will. It's got some amateurish acting as well from Ansari. He doesn't do great. He's not great as an actor in most of the scenes. He, In some scenes, he is fantastic. And I thought he was great through Parks and Rec. But in some scenes in this show, he's just awkward. And his pals don't help at all, especially uh, the his, his friend who's a lesbian na- uh, played by an actress named Lena Waithe. The friend's name is Denise. I found her to be forcing her lines and her reactions throughout the entire season. She distracted me every time she was on screen, and I just I wasn't a fan. I just felt like she was it was very forced. She didn't feel like an actress at all, and I don't mean that in a good way. And sorry, and his love interest Wells do have really good chemistry, though. I like them as a couple. I buy them as a couple, even if they're obnoxiously cutesy at times. I liked watching them as a couple. I thought I bought it. I could I could have seen them off screen being a couple as well. Um, so I wanted to pull a scene from you that I that really stuck out to me when I was talking about how this show beats you over the head with its PSA hammer sometimes. So this scene comes from the end of one of my favorite episodes of this first season of the show. The episode's called Ladies and Gentlemen. The episode looks at various life experiences through the lenses of men and women. And it's a funny, thoughtful trip. But this wrap-up at the end of the episode, like I said, feels like a bad after-school special. Listen to this. This is... This is Dev and Rachel, and basically they're laying out the lesson that the audience has just so graciously been taught by the writers of this show. Um, and this comes from the end, as I said, of Ladies and Gentlemen in Master of None. Well, I guess in my head, I like to think someone isn't so awful that they wouldn't introduce themselves to someone just because they're a woman. And what I'm saying is that there are a lot of subtle little things that happen to me and all women, even in our little progressive world. And when somebody, especially my boyfriend, tells me that I'm wrong without having any way of knowing my personal experience, it's insulting. Okay, I get that. Well, I mean, I guess there's no way I'll ever really know what it's like to be in your shoes, so I'll try to do a better job of listening, all right? So can we call it a draw? As I said, just kind of it, it doesn't it make you kind of feel dumb. Doesn't it feel like they're talking down to you a little bit. Sometimes this show does that, but it doesn't really do it a lot. I, overall, I liked Master of None. I think it's got a lot of promise. I will definitely watch the second season when it comes out. I think um, Aziz Ansari and Alan Yang had a good handle on the things they were trying to write about. There were some very good, thoughtful moments on this show that you do not see on a lot of sitcoms. Um, and it did have a unique voice, but I, I just I hope they hone it a little bit more, make the show feel a little bit more cohesive than just a scatter of 10 separate episodes that aren't really related to each other, even though they are. Um, but, you know, this show could be interesting as an anthology show, but it won't it won't go that route, obviously. And I think it is it, it can be a good show about this one character. We'll see how long the legs are. But Master of None Season 1 right now is available on Netflix. It is, uh, it's a pretty quick watch, but it's one of those you don't... I didn't feel like it was binge-worthy. I didn't binge it. I watched it kind of slowly over a few weeks. So, uh, But check that out right now on Netflix if you like that kind of series. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and take a break real quick, and uh, I will uh, toss things over to Andy Sedlak, our music editor at OverdueReview.com. Let's hear what he's got. Take it away, Andy. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. First, let me say Happy New Year. I have a feeling that 2016 is going to be pretty good to stream police listeners and readers of OverdueReview.com. I am Andy Sedlak, the music editor over at OverdueReview.com. The arrival of 2016 means that certain milestones must be commemorated. It now means that this song is 10 years old. They see me rolling, they hating. So is this. I'm bringing sexy back. The motherfucker don't know how to act. This song, 20 years old. Yo, tell me what I want, what I really, really want. Don't tell me what you want, what you really, really want. I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want. Don't tell me what you want, what you really, really want. I wanna, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna really, really, really wanna zig a zig. This, also 20 years old. Now, if you can believe it, um, this cut is 30 years old. You still hear it everywhere. And we can keep going. Uh, Is this depressing? Anybody out there? This, 40 years old. And half a century old this year. I'm picking up good vibrations. She's giving me the excitations. I'm picking up good vibrations. She's giving me the excitations. I'm picking up good vibrations. She's giving me the excitations. 
Yes, Good Vibrations by the Beach Boys came out in 1966. If you want to get picky, it doesn't officially turn 50 until October. But let's face it, we're not the picky type around here. For giggles, uh, this song turns 60 this year. I found my thrill on Blueberry Hill. And this turns 70. Give me five minutes more, only five minutes more. Let me stay, let me stay in your arms. That was Frank Sinatra with five minutes more. I think you're going to hear a lot from Kanye West in 2016. I mean, we always hear a lot from West and about West. But in the past year, it was sort of all about his Adidas shoe deal, uh, his wife, his son, uh, and his fashion. He actually dropped a new track on New Year's Eve where he referenced extensively the business of his shoe deal. And he sounds as arrogant as ever. The song is called Facts, and it's all attitude. He's taking shots at Nike. I didn't totally keep up with the story, but I believe he, and somebody write me an email, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe he left Nike for Adidas last year. Uh, And he must have been writing this song up until the last minute because he references a lot of like current events that are still very fresh. Listen to this line. Do anybody feel bad for Bill Cosby? Did he forget the names just like Steve Harvey? <laughs> nice, right? I think uh, the shoes are called Yeezy Boosts, but the beat, just the beat of this song, the beat of facts, sounds like something Drake would rap over. Every time I see the news, man, it bring me home. Call up DJ Mano, shout out Twilight Tone. We just best to be alive, yeah, ain't that the truth? So let's celebrate the life of Timbuktu. Timbuktu, Timbuktu. I recommend the track. Uh, listen for Kanye's energy, not uh, his shoe sales numbers or the references to his wife's emoji. Naturally, uh, Kanye is rapping about the reality that surrounds him. That's not hard to understand, that somebody would rap about their life, basically. And in this existence, his shoe deal with Adidas was big business. In declaring a presidential run at the VMAs was a successful publicity stunt. But I hope that in the future, Wes can separate himself from these things uh, when he sits down to write. Now, they're fun to hear about on a throwaway track like this. Something that's not playing a, a pivotal role on an album. But I always enjoyed Kanye the most when his heart was in the gutter. Or when he was musing in an empty room. I know the guy is awesome. I don't need him to tell me that. I need him to remind me why I believe that in the first place. A 
Another artist destined uh, to have a big year in 2016, Taylor Swift. Last year, her 1989 tour was the highest grossing tour of the year by far. And she's got like a like a, a documentary coming out, or maybe it's already been released, about that tour. On the same day that Kanye dropped his new track, she released a video for her single, Out of the Woods. And I actually like the song a lot. Taylor sort of, uh, in this track, takes a break from being top dog, and there's some vulnerability, even desperation there. Uh, and that just, on a human level, sort of makes her a little more relatable. What I didn't understand was the video itself. She's crawling through the muck, standing on a, a mountainside, trekking through the jungle. Wolves are following her the whole time. Yes, I understand the metaphor. What I don't get is why artists feel compelled to be so damn prolific. Prolific, by the way, is in air quotes. I don't think Taylor or Selena Gomez are prolific. No matter how many multi-million dollar artsy-fartsy music videos they throw at me. What's frustrating is that in Taylor's case, the video actually took away from the song, which was more than capable of speaking for itself. She got in her own way. The one thing that Kanye does understand is minimalism. It wouldn't kill Swift to exhale before she begins shooting her next video. I feel like there's a push right now in pop music to beat us over the head with just how damn mature these artists are. They come from um, cutesy backgrounds, Disney, what have you. Uh, And they do. They beat us over the head with just how mature and grown up these artists are. They pin everything right there on the nose. And really, now that I think about it, when you lose a guy like Lemmy Kilmeister, that's why it hurts. Even if you weren't the biggest Motorhead fan, which I wasn't, the guy lived it. For better or for worse, he was himself. He had a natural charisma. When he spoke, you kept listening. You couldn't help it. Same with his music. That hybrid of like speed metal and punk Though he always considered himself a rock and roller. He couldn't stand the word metal. You have actually written a lot of badass songs for other badass singers like Ozzy. And not a lot of people know. For instance, you uh, wrote, name the songs that are big. that you that Ozzy- um Hellraiser. I don't want to change the world and Mama, I'm coming home. Mama, I'm coming home. Yeah. That's the one I was looking for. And a lot of people think the legend is is that Ozzy actually wrote that for Sharon. And Lemmy's here to tell you that is not true. Lemmy wrote it. It was funny, man. Ozzy was doing an interview just around that time. And this guy said, I think that this song, Ozzy, is the most personal one you've ever written. And Ozzy went, he wrote it. <laughs> Classic. So it took the wind out of his sails a bit. That was Lemmy talking to a reporter just a few years ago, I think in 2012. And yes, he did. He wrote Ozzy's Mom, I'm Coming Home. 
Lemmy passed away last week. He had just turned 70 years old. More news last week from uh, Guns N' Roses, the news being that uh, they will reunite at Coachella in April. And Axel and Slash haven't played together since, I want to say, 1993. Um, Since then, there's been a bitter falling out. The only current member of Guns N' Roses that recorded with the band during their heyday is a guy, you probably never heard of him, it's a guy named Dizzy Reed. He's a keyboardist who joined back in 1990. I believe the rest of the original lineup will join in for these shows. That has not been confirmed, but a new tour is in the works. I've read that the band is asking for as much as $3 million per show. I would not... I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to have to deal with those guys, especially Axel. For as much as I like him and I respect him as a vocalist and a writer, it's a weird, unpredictable dude. In navigating Axel through the years of bad blood in order to get him on stage on time isn't something I would wish on many people. If there's major money at play, the band will make it work, but man, behind closed doors, I bet that one will be rough. Now, here are five more songs to add to your stream police playlist. We are building the perfect playlist, my friends. There's a lot of diversity here. The common thread is greatness and durability. First, Time Bomb Town by Lindsey Buckingham. Second, Small Town Saturday Night by Hal Ketchum. Third, bit of a left turn, Pain Redefined by Disturbed. Then, a song called Love Got Me by the great, great British pub rock band from the late 70s called The Inmates. Finally, I present to you Willie Nelson covering one of Jimmy Cliff's greatest songs. This is The Harder They Come, and this is a special recording. And they think that they have got the battle won. I say forgive them, Lord, they know not what they've done. Cause it's sure as the sun will shine. 
That's it, friends. As always, I leave you with the words of the great Kinky Friedman. A genius is somebody who is ahead of their time and behind on their rent. If you can relate, you're in good shape. We'll talk to you soon. See ya. All right, thank you, Mr. Sedlak. Let me relight my stogie here. Sitting in the closet in Cincinnati. Smoking and toking, talking to you about movies and TV. Can't get any better than that. Appreciate you listening in, friends. Uh, email me anytime at theclintdavis at gmail.com. T-H-E, clintdavis at gmail.com. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Clint Davis. And you can uh, also follow Overdue Review at overdue underscore review. Let's go to the cinema now. Let's talk about uh, some movies that are in theaters right now getting a lot of buzz for awards season. All three of these are nominated for big awards at the Golden Globes coming up uh, here just right around the corner. First off, I'm going to start with a movie that I absolutely loved. I loved this movie. I would give this, probably if I was rated on five, I'd give it probably four and a half out of five stars. I just, I loved it. It would be close to a five star, I'm telling you. There wasn't really anything about this movie I did not like, but I'd have to watch it again before I'd go that far. This is a movie called Brooklyn. It is directed by John Crowley, who uh, directed Closed Circuit, which I had never seen before, but uh, he did do that film. Screenplay was written by the great Nick Hornby, who wrote my favorite film of 2014, Wild, and has written novels and uh, did an album with Ben Folds and has done some other movies. Nick Hornby does great work. So when I saw his name on this, that was really what made me think that Brooklyn was going to be something worth watching. I got to admit, when I first saw the previews for this, I thought it looked like a, a Nicholas Sparks movie. And I even said that to my wife. I was like... She she wanted to go see Brooklyn. She she said that it looked really good. It was getting a lot of buzz. And I said, no, it looks like a goddamn Nicholas Sparks movie, all right? I'm not watching a Nicholas Sparks movie. I don't care how much buzz it's getting. But she talked me into it. We went and saw it, and I freaking loved it. I was sitting there the whole time with a huge grin on my face. I, I thought this movie was fantastic. It stars Saoirse Ronan, who's a, a lovely Irish actress. I, just, I fell in love with her in this movie. Emery Cohen and Domhnall Gleeson. Um, are the other stars of this film. So Brooklyn is this romantic movie. It Romantic films that really dig into their characters and the challenges of what makes a great love story are hard to come by. Usually it's very surfacy, very, very surfacy in the romance genre. Ones that run the emotional gamut as well, without being cheesy for a second, are even more rare in the romance genre. Brooklyn does both of these things, and it was a joy to watch. I'm, I'm serious. A joy, underline that, a joy to watch. I had so much fun watching this movie. The characters in this movie were well-rounded and full of life, and the story was a great reminder, really, of the hardships faced by Irish immigrants, even as recently as the 1950s, where the movie is set. Um, so for most of the movie, I had a huge smile on my face, and I desperately wanted it to keep going when the credits rolled. It was just a story that I liked following and a cast of characters that I never got tired of. So the movie Brooklyn is about a, a, a young girl who's an Irish immigrant, played by Saoirse Ronan, who comes to Brooklyn. She comes to Brooklyn on a ship alone, leaves her, her family, her sister and her mother in Ireland, comes over here to try to make a life for herself, gets a job at a department store, um, gets involved in a little bit of volunteering, and, and tries to set up a home here in America. She's trying to make a life for herself. Her ties to her loving sister 
and what she feels are obligations to keep her mother company as the youngest daughter, keep her spirit grounded in Ireland. She's like she's weeping most days. She's she's in America because she's so homesick. But she's got this great support system that that comes up in America. And, And this movie, as much as it was about romance, was also about it was also about surrogate families and about the the friends that you make and how friends sometimes can usurp family in importance um, and how lovers can definitely usurp family in importance in your heart. I mean, not that they're better than your family, your original family, but, you know, that's what is it that makes a place your home? That's really what this film was all about. So she's she's homesick a lot, but then she meets and falls in love with a young guy who's an Italian-American um, his his parents were immigrants from Italy, and now he's living in Brooklyn and is very much an Italian. Their love story is so sweet and so genuine that you cannot help but root for them. They, I'm telling you, it is one of the most innocent, sweet love stories. But it's not innocent like in a way where it doesn't feel relatable. It's just classy. They just it's a classy love story. Then the story gets complicated though when she's called back to Ireland after tragedy happens over there, and she spends a few weeks reclaimed by home and sort of sort of kind of dating a man from her hometown. She's spending a lot of time with this guy and she doesn't tell her how deep the extent of her relationship with the guy back in America is. So there's a time where you're trying you're kind of wanting to slap her and say get your head in the game and get back over there. But she but she's a great character. I loved this character. Brooklyn was straightforward, beautiful filmmaking. I loved this movie. If if Saoirse Ronan wins the Oscar for Best Actress, I'll say the Academy made the right choice. Absolutely. I mean, if acting is you getting lost in a character and me believing as an audience member that that is you, that's what she did here. I bought her all day long. And I challenge any man to not be charmed by her accent in this movie. She's just got this beautiful Irish accent. She's a beautiful girl. And it's just such a – it's a lovely movie. I, I loved Brooklyn. I loved it. I loved its simplicity. I loved the story it told. And I just think it did everything well. It just every part of it was done well. It had moments of heartbreak. It had so many moments of joy, laughter, and was just so much fun to watch in theaters. I couldn't recommend Brooklyn more. If you're if you're wanting something to go see at the theater and you're you're standing there and you're looking up and you're seeing all the movies that are out and Brooklyn's playing, do yourself a favor and go see it. You will absolutely love it, especially if you want to watch something romantic, maybe on a date. You can't lose with Brooklyn. Uh, it's it's fantastic. I want to ask you something, and you're going to say, oh, it's too soon. I don't really know him well enough. We only been out a couple times. Oh, it's nothing so bad. It's just something that most guys did. Please just ask. You're beginning to terrify me. Oh, sure. Uh, Will you come for dinner and meet my family sometime? That's it. I'd love to. You like Italian food? Don't know. I've never eaten it. It's the best food in the world. Well, why would I not like it? You're in a good mood, huh? Yes. Why? It's just... I like how you're being. I don't know the word, though, when you go along with everything. Amenable. Yeah? Amenable? Okay. So why are you being amenable? Can we go see a movie this week when you're not in night class? And I got to give my wife Beth credit, man. She, I, I didn't believe in it. I thought it looked like, uh, thought it looked like Nicholas Sparks bullshit, but it wasn't at all. All right, moving on. Uh, another movie that is in theaters right now, getting a ton of buzz for the Oscars, and uh, is nominated for some Golden Globes. The Danish Girl. I was not so high on this movie. I was going into it. I mean, I, I thought, 
the director of the movie, Tom Hooper, he did The King's Speech and Les Miserables. He, he's not one of my favorite directors. I didn't like either of those movies that much. I thought King's Speech was funny, well acted, but I didn't love it. I, did, I didn't think it should have won Best Picture that year. Should have been uh, The Social Network all day long. But anyways, so I wasn't like really high on this film. But, you know, I do like Eddie Redmayne a bit. I love Alicia Vikander. And I thought it had a chance. But I, I was not in love with The Danish Girl after I got done with this movie. Screenplay was written by Lucinda Coxon, who wrote a movie called Wild Target and some other things. The movie stars Eddie Redmayne, the Oscar winner from last year, and Alicia Vikander, who really, I would say, was the breakout actress of 2015 in cinema with roles in three movies that, uh, well, two that did really well, and one of them was a big-budget film, and oddly, that was the one that didn't do that well. Uh, The Danish Girl, though, this is a gorgeous-looking and well-acted period movie. And what it does is it tells the story of, the true story, of a Danish painter whom we would identify as transgender today, um, but uh, they really, they, they didn't have like a term or a movement back in the 1920s when this movie is set. And he's really just treated as like an oddball. Eddie Redmayne plays the painter who elects to have one of the first sex change operations, as I said, in the 1920s. I felt that the movie oversimplified what is a very complex issue, and that is people who identify as transgender. I feel like that's a, that's a complex state of mind and, and, and issue in today's world, but this movie oversimplified it a little bit, I feel like. I, I felt like the movie made it look like Redmayne's character just wanted to be a woman because of the gender's connection to quote-unquote beautiful things and glamour. And he was into glamour, and he liked the dresses, and he liked the shoes and all these kind of things. And, and this was what kind of first really made him think about, you know, having the operation and everything. And, you know, we were told in the film that this was a state of mind that had been with him since his childhood. But I I didn't really see that portrayed in the film. I felt like they were doing a lot of telling and not a lot of showing, which, as you know, in movies is not a good thing. you got to show us. Don't tell us. The character's mental state was well-documented in the film, really. Uh, They did did go into the mental state of, of this person a lot, but I don't feel like this movie will go down as the film that helps people better understand the transgender movement. I just, I don't feel like the Danish girl is going to be looked at as like, that's the movie that made everyone understand what the transgender movement um, was all about. Kind of like when people think of AIDS, they think of Philadelphia, you know, like it or not. Philadelphia may have oversimplified AIDS, but it did, you know, kind of teach a lot of people what AIDS was about. And it gave it a very human face. I don't know that the Danish girl did that so much for the transgender movement. I mean, it's, be, mostly because, okay, Redmayne played the part fine. I thought he played the part fine. I, I thought the transformation was good. I, I bought him um, as as a woman. But the, his performance didn't move me nearly as much as he did in The Theory of Everything when he played Dr. Stephen Hawking and won an Oscar. I just felt like his character in this film was so selfish that it made her hard to, for me to connect with. And it made her a hard character for me to truly feel for. Because, as I said, she's a very she's a selfish a selfish character. Now, on the other hand, Alicia Vikander, who plays the painter's wife, was fantastic in this film. To me, this was her movie. She was the star of this film. The struggle of her character, because you put yourself in her position. This is a character who has been, they've been married for a while, and they've got a great marriage. We see that. They've got a great sex life. They've got, they, they really love each other. They're both painters. They're inspired by each other's work. They respect each other. But then, she has to basically stand idly by 
while her husband, this man that she's known for a long time and been married to, shared every intimate part of her life with, transitions into becoming a woman. She has to just stand by and let it happen because she truly loves him. She has to let him go. But that, to me, is what made this movie worth watching, was her and watching her really go through this together with him. Vikander is, if you haven't watched anything with Alicia Vikander, she was an ex machina earlier this year, and she was really good in that. She was in The Man from Uncle also this year. She is an unbelievably beautiful woman, like just just gorgeous. And the camera loves it, her. And and Tom Hooper knows how beautiful she is because we get a lot of long shots of her face just looking in the camera, looking slightly off camera, and just we just get to admire her a lot. She's she's she is beautiful. And her character is far from this typically mild-mannered woman that you'd see in a period film from like the 1920s. She she was an exciting character. I really liked her. The way she carries herself and the way she does her paintings with this cigarette holder hanging out of her lips and she's a little bit, you know, casual but she's got a serious attitude. I just thought she was irresistible. I, I really liked the way she played this part. Um and her her Oscar buzz is is well deserved for the Danish girl, but I just, I didn't love the film. Didn't connect so much with the main character, and it's not because I'm not transgender and I don't get it. I I just don't, I didn't feel like this was the movie that is going to, you know, really be the film that's the touchstone for wider audiences um, on such a complex issue. I just felt like it oversimplified it too much. So Danish girl's in theaters right now, but I wouldn't give it a heavy recommendation. Just, I didn't love it, but Alicia Vikander, she did outstanding work. This is not how it goes. We do these things together. It was you and I, though. Stop playing that stupid, stupid game. Please, Gerda. Don't you think this is a game? You should have been there. How could I? Look at me. Not everything is about you. I need my husband. Can you get him? I can't. I need to talk to my husband. I need to hold my husband. I need him. Can't you just get him? Can you at least try? I'm sorry. Now, finally, in wrapping up today on the Stream Police podcast, let's talk about a movie that was nominated for more Golden Globes than any other film uh, at this year's ceremony but one that I was even more down on than I was on The Danish Girl, Carol, which is right now in theaters, directed by Todd Haynes. I would say the great Todd Haynes. I love Todd Haynes. He did Far From Heaven. He did I'm Not There, which I reviewed at OverdueReview.com if you want to check it out. Screenplay written by Phyllis Nagy, who wrote a film called Mrs. Harris. Carol stars Kate Blanchett in the title role and Rooney Mara and Kyle Chandler from Friday Night Lights fame. Carol was this artfully done 1950s story about forbidden love between two women. That's the crux of the movie. These two women, Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara, they start out as strangers. They meet in a, in a department store in what is supposed to be New York, was actually filmed in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, and, they, and they slowly fall in love with each other. But I got to tell you, I was bored to tears with this movie, and I found myself feeling nothing for the characters at its center. Not that I wished them ill, not that I didn't understand the struggle, but I just did not feel anything for them. And I'm a huge fan of Todd Haynes in general, but I feel like this was an inferior version of a movie he made in 2002 called Far From Heaven. If you ever never saw Far From Heaven, do yourself a favor and check that one out. I've actually been wanting to write about it on the website for a while. 
Uh, Julianne Moore stars in it. It's a it's a movie about like a 19, I think it took place in the 50s as well, 50s housewife who falls in love with a black man. And they have this, uh, this relationship together that they know can never happen. And it's all, and that movie also is kind of about closeted uh, homosexuality in a way as well. It's got a storyline about that too. I just felt like Far From Heaven was a better movie of this same story. I, di- I didn't feel like Carol lived up to it. The thing that I, I took really away from Carol is, you know, it's tragic. The consequences both legally and socially that women would face in those days simply for being gay. And it's not just women, but men as well. But we usually see the, char- the story done between two men. But this was done between two women. Just just for being gay, the the prices that they had to pay. But the movie's characters just did nothing for me. So I didn't really care so much what happened to either of them. Blanchett's performance as the title character, to me, felt overacted. I know it's sacrilegious to say that because I like Kate Blanchett a lot. I've loved her in films, but, you know, she can overact at times. And I felt like she did in this movie a few in a few scenes. Mara was the exact opposite, though. She felt like a piece of wood in a performance that really was very laconic. Um, and, and it wasn't, I don't feel like it was career defining work for Rooney Mara here. This film was shot in Cincinnati, as I said. So that distracted me a, a lot when I was watching the film because I'm seeing things that I recognize from, from being in town. And also I'm watching the movie in a theater in Cincinnati. I had these annoying old people sitting behind me talking about every goddamn street that came up and every, how they recognize it's like, shut the hell up and watch the movie and talk about this stuff later when you're having dinner with each other. Don't talk about it during the film. So I was distracted. I'll, I'll, I'll give it that. Maybe if I watched the film at home with headphones on, I would be, I would have loved Carol, but I don't think so. I was glad to have something to be swept up by, meaning looking around for Cincinnati things, because the plot just didn't do it for me. I give Phyllis Nagy credit, the screenwriter, because she did not resort to like a cliche ending that invoked a tragedy, as most of these movies usually do. I mean, you think about Brokeback Mountain. These kind of films, usually you have like the aggressive lover who invariably ends up dead somehow, and it gets the audience bawling every time, and the, the, le- the lover left standing around is crying and weeping, and we're weeping with them. That's not how Carol went down, and I give it credit for not going that route. But everything to me just felt a little bit too mundane for me. I don't feel like Carol was a bad film. I mean, honestly, I'd probably give it like uh, two and a half or three stars out of five. I just didn't feel like it was great, but it wasn't bad at all. I I just don't feel like it would deserve to get the most Golden Globe nominations this year, which makes people probably think that it was the best movie of the year, right? But it's it's not. Um, I also have to give love to Sarah Paulson and Kyle Chandler, who played supporting uh, characters in the film. Both of them were fantastic. As, as blah as I was on Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara in this movie, Kyle Chandler and Sarah Paulson were awesome uh, in this film. And every time they were on screen, I just wanted them to stay on screen, basically. Uh, and I wanted more. So I'm like, don't go away, Sarah. Stay here. Let me talk to you some more. Kyle, come back. Keep yelling. You're very exciting. So Carol right now is in theaters if you want to check it out. Oh, your perfume. Yes. It's nice. Thank you. Harge bought me a bottle years ago before we were married, and I've been wearing it ever since. Harge is your husband? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, technically, we're divorcing. I'm sorry. Don't be. And do you live alone, Therese Balavet? I do. Well, there's Richard. He'd like to live with me. Oh, no, it's nothing like that. I mean, he'd like to marry me. I see. And would you like to marry him? Well, I barely even know what to order for lunch. 
Don't say I didn't warn you, though. It's a dull one. It's a, it's definitely a dull one. Uh, I want to give you guys a note before we uh, before we wrap it up today. Our next episode will not air until January 31st, so we're taking off uh, in, in two weeks. We're not going to be doing a show that weekend as we usually do, so we'll be back in four weeks, actually, this time, January 31st. Look for that to be our next episode of The Stream Police. Um, coming up uh, on the show next time, I'm going to be talking about Amazon's fantastic series, The Man in the High Castle, and I'll also be talking about the film The Big Short, and a movie called Youth. Both of those are in theaters right now and getting some awards buzz as well. And more things will come up also. You want to email me? It's theclintdavis at gmail.com. T-H-E, clintdavis at gmail.com. Go on uh, iTunes and rate the show. Give us a fantastic five-star review. We would very much appreciate it. And uh, while you're uh, on the web, like us, uh, follow us on Twitter, I should say, at overdue underscore review, and like us on Facebook, and you'll see all of our latest posts to the website right there. Uh, I'm Clint Davis, Movies and TV Editor at OverdueReview.com. I'll talk to you guys next time. Thanks to our music editor, Andy Sedlak, as always, for his priceless contributions to the program. Thank you guys so much for listening. Talk to you next time. Be careful, friends. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.